the words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labours at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. This is the word of the Lord. Hi everyone, my name is Adam, I'm the lead pastor here and it's great to have you join us today. Whether you're with us in the building or whether you're joining us online, we're really glad to have you. Today we are starting a a brand new sermon series that we've called Chasing the Wind. For 10 weeks we're going to be looking at the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Now I remember someone once said to me when I was younger, you've got to read Ecclesiastes, it's awesome. So I went home and I read the book over uh, a few days and I remember getting to the end and thinking, what did I just read? I mean, the book begins, as we heard just a moment ago, by saying meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. What a way to start a book, especially a book in the Bible. I mean, you might be thinking, is this really in the Bible? Isn't the Bible supposed to comfort us and inspire us? Is this really in the Bible? I mean, you don't see this verse on a coffee cup very often, do you? Now, the fact is, Ecclesiastes is a unique book in the Bible. Here's how one pastor describes it. He says, if the Bible is like a party, Ecclesiastes is the party pooper. It reminds me of uh, Saturday Night Live, which is like an American comedy show, and they have all these different skits. And there's one character called Debbie Downer. Someone will share some good news or something good that's happening, and Debbie will interject with the opposite and the negative. Maybe you know a few Debbie Downers in your life. There's this one skit in particular that's at a wedding, and everyone's saying how lovely it is and how happy the couple looks. And Debbie interjects and says, well, good luck to them. The only thing higher than petrol prices in this country is the divorce rate. Now this is what it can feel like when you read through the Bible and you get to Ecclesiastes. It can feel like a downer. Even in the wisdom literature itself, which is the part of the Bible that Ecclesiastes belongs to. You read through Psalms and there's beautiful poems and prayers and songs. You read through Proverbs and it tells you how to live a life of wisdom. You get to Song of Songs and it's this beautiful uh, exploration of love and intimacy. 
And then you get to Ecclesiastes and it feels like Debbie Downer interjects. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Now when you hear this, you might wonder, well, who wrote this book? It seems like someone gave Eeyore a pencil and he wrote a book. I mean, who is this guy and what happened to him? Was he dumped? Was he sacked? Did he get a terminal diagnosis? Did he write this book on a Monday morning before he had his coffee? He seems bitter about life. He seems angry about the hand that's been dealt to him. But he's not bitter, he's not angry, and he's not a loser. We're introduced to the author in verse 1, and this is what we read. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now the author describes himself as the teacher. The Hebrew word is koheleth, which literally means a speaker before an assembly, someone who gathers an assembly. Think about a preacher before a congregation or a teacher before a classroom. The teacher, he wants to gather us together and he wants to impart some wisdom about life to you and to me. And the truth is the wisdom of Ecclesiastes can help us because it's honest. It's actually uncomfortably honest. It's brutally honest. Herman Melville, the great American novelist, he wrote Moby Dick, he described Ecclesiastes as the truest of all books. More than any other book in the Bible, Ecclesiastes is honest about the frustration and the futility of life in a fallen world. It's honest about the fact that life can sometimes be dull and unjust and senseless. That life can sometimes be tedious and difficult and repetitive. A never-ending cycle of dishes and dust and washing and weeds. Ecclesiastes is honest about what Derek Kidner calls the treadmill of our existence. And this is why Ecclesiastes can actually be a gift from God. Because it can help us to be honest with God about the problems of our life. In fact, one scholar suggests that Ecclesiastes is like a back door that allows us to be honest and to feel the the sad and sceptical thoughts that we might not always allow into the front door of our faith. And so the teacher is being honest with us about life in this world. But who is this teacher? Is he just some kind of disgruntled, dissatisfied professor Has he been in the classroom too long and he's just bitter about the fact that he hasn't got out and really lived his life? Well, no. Notice that the teacher is more than just a teacher. He's also a king. That's what we see there at the end of verse 1. Son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, traditionally, uh, scholars have thought that Solomon is the author of Ecclesiastes. After all, Solomon was a son of David. He was born to Bathsheba. And Solomon was a king in Jerusalem, the king after David. But more recently, scholars have thought that the author is someone writing about Solomon. They're writing from the perspective and the persona of Solomon to teach us about life in this world. Now, either way, this means that Ecclesiastes is not written by someone at the bottom of the pile, but rather someone at the top. I mean, remember, Solomon was the wisest man to have ever lived. He was also one of the richest men to have ever lived. He had all the wine and all the women that he could have wanted. I mean, he'd seen and done it all. He had everything that we spend our lives chasing. And this is what makes his conclusion about life so shocking. Because the man who had more money, 
more possessions, more pleasure, more wisdom than anyone else. He concludes, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Now it's kind of like being invited to Michael Jordan's house to have some breakfast and to shoot some hoops. And he tells you that the the homes and the rings and the money, it's all meaningless. It doesn't matter. And then you go for a drive with Elon Musk in the Tesla and he tells you all about the space um, explorations and the latest innovations. Then he turns to you and he says, well, who cares? It's all really pointless. And then you go and you have lunch with Bill Gates and he tells you everything that he's done and all the money that he's given away. He says to you, but nothing really amounts to anything, not in the big scheme of things. And then you drop into Buckingham Palace for a cup of tea and the Queen says to you, it's all a charade, doesn't matter. To finish, you have dinner with Bob Dylan and Paul Simon and Bob turns to you and he says, the answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. And Paul says to you, you know, the nearer your destination, the more you're slip sliding away. Now, if you had this experience, it'd be pretty cool, but it would also be totally shocking. And this is what we have here in Ecclesiastes. The man with more money, more pleasure, more possessions, more wisdom, he looks at it all and he concludes meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Now, it's blunt, isn't it? It's almost uncomfortable. Is this really what the teacher is saying? Is the universe really meaningless and are our lives really pointless i mean does the teacher agree with macbeth in shakespeare that life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying meaning nothing or richard dawkins who says there is at bottom no design no purpose no evil no good nothing but blind pitiless indifference i guess a a lot really hinges on the word meaningless. And it's a really important word in the book of Ecclesiastes. In fact, it shows up 38 times in just 12 chapters. Other translations translate it as absolute futility or vanity of vanities or or another personal favorite, perfectly pointless. But none of those translations really capture the, the true meaning of the word. The Hebrew word is hevel, hevel, which literally means smoke or breath. It means a mist, a vapor, a puff of wind, a short breath, a bit of smoke. The teacher's perspective on life is this, breath, breath, everything is breath. Now that's a little bit ethereal, isn't it? So what does it mean? Well, it means at least two things. Firstly, it means that life is fleeting. Life is short and momentary and temporary. It's like when I blow bubbles with my kids. Blow them in the air and the kids chase after them. They're they're shiny, they're translucent, they're filled with breath. But in a matter of seconds, they pop and they're gone. And this is what we are like. God says in Genesis 3 that we are like dust. Psalm 144 says we are a breath and a passing shadow. James chapter 4 in the New Testament says we are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Now, just last week, Alex Chumpy Pullen, he was uh, 32 years old, close to my age. He was a three-time Olympian, a flag bearer. He drowned 
while spearfishing off Palm Beach. He was in the prime of his life. Breath, breath, everything is breath. Now this is hard for us to hear. We don't like to be reminded of the fact that we're going to die. I mean, it makes us uncomfortable. We don't like to talk about it, but it's good for us to hear this and to talk about it. You know, a really, really great book on Ecclesiastes, which I'll be leaning on this series, is called Destiny by a a minister named David Gibson. The subtitle of this book is Learning to Live by Preparing to Die. And the back of the book says this. It says, only a proper perspective on death provides a true perspective on life. Living in the light of your death will help you to live wisely, freely, and generously. It will enable you to relish all the small things in profound ways. I mean, this is one of the biggest lessons that we will gain from Ecclesiastes. That we need to learn, that we learn to live by preparing to die. Because Ecclesiastes will talk openly and often about death. Not to depress us, but to get us to open our eyes, to help us to live wisely. Like another part of the Bible puts it in Psalm 90, teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. And so when the teacher says that it's all hevel, it's all breath, he means that life is fleeting. He also means that life is futile. It's mysterious. It's unpredictable and sometimes absurd. It's like smoke. Imagine I lit up a a cigar right now. Uh, What would happen is I would probably get in trouble from the elders and also uh, there would be all this smoke around me. And we'd all be be able to see it and it would all look solid. But if we tried to grab it, there'd be nothing there. We would just kind of push the smoke away. And this is what life is like. It's hard for us to, to grasp and to hold on to. It's difficult to get a grip on it. And just when we feel like we do have a grip on it, something happens that blows it all away. You know, I recently read a book called When Breath Becomes Air. It's the memoir of a man named Paul Kalanithi. Now, Paul was a neurosurgeon in the United States. He graduated from Yale, Cambridge, and Stanford. And so he was pretty, flying pretty high. But listen to what he writes about what happens to him in this book. He says, At age 36, I had reached the mountaintop. I could see the promised land, from Gilead to Jericho to the Mediterranean Sea. I could see a nice catamaran on that sea that Lucy, our hypothetical children, and I would take out on weekends. I could see the tension in my back unwinding as my work schedule eased and life became more manageable. I could see myself finally becoming the husband I'd promised to be. Then, a few weeks later, I began having bouts of severe chest pain. And Paul in the book goes on to describe how he was diagnosed with lung cancer. And then one year later, Paul was dead. Breath, breath, everything is breath. You know, sometimes we actually do get what we want. Sometimes we do get the kids and the catamaran. We get the job, the pay rise, the relationship, the degree. But even then we find that they're just like smoke. They look solid, but we can't grab onto them. They don't deliver. They don't satisfy. They leave us wanting more. And this is the teacher's perspective on life. It's hevel. 
its breath, its chasing the wind. Now you might be thinking, far out, this guy needs to lighten up. I mean, has he never seen a sunrise? Has he never swum in the ocean or hugged his kids or drunk a a good single malt whiskey? I mean, come on, he's a little bit cynical, isn't he? Well, it's important to realize that the teacher is not an atheist or a pessimist. In fact, as we'll see as we work our way through the book, and especially when we get to the end, the teacher has a solid trust in God. And the teacher will call on us to enjoy the gifts of God. But the teacher has a very, very important lesson that we all need to learn. He wants us to know that we are not God. That we are not in control. That we will not live forever. And that everything, apart from God, will fail to satisfy us. And this is the point of the other phrase that the teacher uses repeatedly throughout the book. It's a really important word in Ecclesiastes. Under the sun. You see, the teacher is not really evaluating and looking at and examining life under God. He's evaluating life under the sun. Life on this side of eternity. Life in this fallen world. Life that ends in death. And he does this to expose our wrong ways of living. To expose the wrong things that we look to for meaning. The teacher, in other words, is trying to show us the emptiness of life under the sun. So that we will look to the God beyond the sun. Ecclesiastes is the dark backdrop against which the glory and the goodness and the grace of God shines bright. Here's the way someone else has put it. They say Ecclesiastes forces us to see that God alone is solid rock and everything else is sinking sand. And to make his point, the teacher does not really focus on God. I mean, God's not even mentioned in this passage today. The teacher actually focuses on the sinking sand. He really rubs our noses in it and he says, look at this, really look at it. It's heaven. You cannot build your life on it. And this is why the teacher is so brutally honest with us. Not because he's a pessimist, but because he's a realist. He wants us to really examine life in this world. He wants us to open our eyes, to look, to see. And this is why Ecclesiastes, when we properly understand it, it's not a pity party. It can be, and it actually is, a pathway to God. But only if we're willing to open our eyes. Only if we're willing to really listen to what the teacher has to say. You know, there's a songwriter in the United States named Brandy Carlisle. She has a song called The Eye. And in the chorus, she sings, You can dance in a hurricane, but only if you're standing in the eye. You see, if we are willing to confront the hurricane of life in a fallen world, if we are willing to not put our heads in the sand, to not distract ourselves with toys and trinkets and and busyness, but really look, really open our eyes, then we will see that in the midst of the hurricane, there is not a, a place just to stand and to endure, but there is a place to enjoy, to taste and to see that the Lord is good. And so I hope and I pray that you're ready for this journey through Ecclesiastes. It's going to get a bit dark, it will get a bit bumpy, but if we will open our eyes, if we'll be willing to look, I hope and I pray it will also be a pathway to God. And so we're going to begin our journey today by looking at verses 3 to 11. And I want to explore this passage under three headings. And don't worry, we'll move through them pretty quickly. I know we've already covered a lot of ground. 
The first heading, if you're taking notes, is this. It's an uncomfortable question. An uncomfortable question. There are lots of different questions, aren't there, that make us uncomfortable. What do you earn? What do you weigh? How do you vote? Well, the teacher, he asks us another one in verse 3. He says, what do people gain from all their labours at which they toil under the sun? Now, the word gain is a business word. It means to have something left over, to make a profit. And so the question is, at the end of your life, what will be the profit? What will be the surplus? What will be the lasting gain from all your effort and your work? Here's how another translation puts it. You spend your life working, laboring, and what do you have to show for it? Now, one man who considered this question was Sir Leonard Wolfe, the husband of the late Virginia Woolf. Now, he himself was a pretty accomplished man. He was a political theorist, a publisher, and a prolific author. He wrote, I think, over 20 books. But as he got to the end of his life, he, he looked back over it, and this is what he concluded. He says, I see clearly that I've achieved practically nothing. The world today and the history of the human anthill during the past 57 years would be exactly the same as it is if I had played ping pong instead of sitting on committees and writing books and memoranda. I have therefore to make the rather ignominious confession that I must have in a long life ground through between 150,000 and 200,000 hours of perfectly useless work. Now, pretty encouraging, right? But actually, this is even the answer of the teacher to his question as well. I mean, what do you gain for all your toil? The answer of the teacher is essentially nothing. Yes, we start companies, we build homes, we have kids, we get degrees. But nothing really changes anything and no one really remembers. I mean, after we're gone, it's almost as if we were never here. The company crashes or is taken over. The home is renovated or demolished. The degrees get put in the bin. Even the kids eventually pass on. This is what the teacher goes on to say in verse 4. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The teacher is saying, we walk across the rocks on this earth, but we leave no footprints. We walk across the sand, but our footprints are washed away. I mean, do we really make any lasting difference by walking across the stage of this world? Because long after we've lived and long after we've died, the sun keeps rising, the waves keep crashing, the world keeps spinning, and we're forgotten. Verse 11, he says, No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. I wonder how much you know about your great-grandparents or even your great-great grandparents. Do you even know their names? Let's suppose that you do something significant. You get your name on a plaque somewhere, or you get a building named after you, or even a city named after you. Do you really think that anyone will remember why that building or that city was named? I mean, what can you tell me about Sir Thomas Brisbane, after whom our own city was named? The harsh the uncomfortable truth is that for all of our toil and our striving under the sun, we will not be remembered by those to come and the world will go on long after we're gone. And to really drive his point home, the teacher follows it up with some confronting observations. 
This is our second point. Firstly, the teacher asks an uncomfortable question and then he gives us some confronting observations. Now you're thinking right now, wait, it gets worse. Welcome back to church. (laughs) I mean, to prove his point, the teacher lists some things that never really go anywhere or never seem to gain anything. He gives some examples from the natural world in verses 5 to 7. This is what he says. He says, The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. He says the sun just does the same thing each and every day. It chases its tail. The winds just go round and around. The sea is constantly being filled, but it's never full. These things just go around and around in circles. And the teacher's point is that it's the same for you and for me. I mean, we like to think that we're blazing a trail. We're we're unique, but in reality, we're running on a treadmill. I mean, we're busy, we're sweating, we're working hard, but what difference does it really make in the end? I mean, what does it really accomplish? What do we really gain? Do we ever reach the finish line? Do we ever find satisfaction? What's the profit? Where's the progress? Think about it. We mow the grass, and then two weeks later, we have to do it again. We do the dishes, and then there's more waiting for us the next night. We get the high-paying job, but it comes with long hours and high pressure. And so we get the low-pressure job, but we find ourselves unfulfilled and unstimulated. We buy a tent to go camping to enjoy the wonders of nature, and then we see someone with a caravan. We buy the Apple 10, uh, the iPhone 10, and then Apple release the iPhone 11. We walk into our wardrobe. The racks and the drawers are filled with clothes. And we think to ourselves, I've got nothing to wear. And so we go out and we buy some new clothes, and then two weeks later they're old, and we've got nothing to wear again. We constantly refresh our Facebook feed throughout the day, longing, searching for new bits of news and information and entertainment. I mean, we are like children two days after Christmas who get bored even with good things. We're always wanting more. And it's tiring. It's exhausting. It's wearisome. And it never ends. This is what the teacher says in verse 8. He says, All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. We're just like the sea. We're constantly being filled with all these different streams, and yet we're never full. We're never satisfied. We long for something new, something exciting, something novel to break the tedium of our lives. But the teacher says there is no such thing. Verse 9, he says, What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Now you might say, wait a minute, there's nothing new? What about the iPhone? I mean, that's something pretty new that that hasn't been around before. Well, it's just another means of communication, isn't it? And humans have been communicating since the dawn of time. A new government is still a government. A new baby is still a baby. Even space travel is just a, a new form of adventure and exploration. See, the teacher is not saying that there will be no new inventions in our world. He's saying that there will be nothing new, no new device, no new technology, no new discovery that will break the cycle 
that will fix our problems, that will fulfill our longings. I mean, Netflix will never have enough shows. Our wardrobes will never have enough clothes. Our wallet will never have enough money. Our technology will never be advanced enough. Our homes will never be big enough or stylish enough to fulfill our deepest longings. John D. Rockefeller was one of the most wealthy men to have ever lived. He was once asked, how much money is enough? His answer, just a little bit more. Now the problem is not with money, not with Netflix, not with technology. The problem is with our hearts. John Calvin said that our hearts, the human heart, is like an idol factory. We are constantly looking for and latching onto something or someone to give us meaning and purpose and significance. But it never works because we are like the sea that is never full. One writer says, putting a space station in the skies has not kept our families intact, delivered us from dictators, or eradicated a selfish heart. New inventions make our bones heal quicker, but not our minds, not our hearts. So what's the answer? Are our lives really just meaningless toil? Are all of our tears and our toiling pointless? Well, we can thank God that Ecclesiastes does not have the final say. We can thank God that life under the sun is not all there is. And this is what the unfolding story of the Bible tells us. And this brings us to our third and final point, which is an outsider's intervention. An outsider's intervention. See, the Bible tells us that we are not alone in this life under the sun. That there is more to this life than chasing after the wind. Because God has come for us from beyond the sun. In Jesus Christ, God has come and he has come to set us free. To set us free from the power of death. To set us free from the futility of life. And to give us new hearts. This is what we read about Jesus in John's Gospel. Chapter 1, verse 14, the Word, this is a title for Jesus, a reference to Jesus. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He came to live among us under the sun. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus has broken the cycle. Jesus has come from heaven to earth and he has experienced the frustration and the futility of life under the sun. He has experienced our pain, our trials, our temptations. And he has even gone to the cross to die in our place. But the incredible, life-changing, world-changing news of the gospel is that death did not hold him. He rose again and he offers to us the gift of eternal life. Life with God, both now in our lives under the sun and life forever with God. And this fills our lives with meaning and purpose and significance. This is why after talking about the resurrection of Jesus, the Apostle Paul concludes in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain.
What you do for Jesus, your love, your prayers, your service, your sacrifice, your generosity, your faithfulness, your presence, it matters. It's not vain. It's not meaningless. It's not pointless. It matters and it will matter forever. So stand firm. Don't give up. Keep on going. You know, when the Titanic, the the ship was sinking, the band, they picked up their instruments and in the midst of the fear and the chaos and the confusion, they calmly played on. And the Bible says that this world and its desires are passing away. That the world and all that we chase in it is sinking. But God is calling us as his people to pick up our instruments and to play. To love him and to love others. To put aside what doesn't matter. To pursue what does matter. To give, to serve, to sacrifice. To enjoy the gifts he's given us. Because one day, God will resurrect the ship. God will resurrect us and he will restore his creation. See, the teacher says, there is nothing new under the sun. And God says to us at the end of the Bible, behold, I am making all things new. Let's turn to him now. Father, thank you that you have rescued us and you have come for us in the person of Jesus Christ. Thank you that he has lived the life we have not lived, died in our place on the cross and been raised from death to offer us and to give us the gift of eternal life. Please, Lord, help us to receive that and to walk in light of it. Thank you for giving us new hearts by your spirit so that we might begin to know you, love you and serve others. Oh Lord, please help us to know that our labor for you is not in vain. It's meaningful, it's purposeful, and it's pleasing to you. And so we ask that you might help us to do that. Help us to be a church that overflows with hope, overflows with love, for the glory of your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, as we close, let me offer this blessing over you. May God be your unfailing joy, Christ your unfailing hope, and the Spirit your unfailing comforter in all your worship and work and troubles until Jesus comes. Amen.